Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the many and varied challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website, which is journeytosuccessradio.com. My co-host today is my colleague from TechBlocks, Peter Goral. Peter, introduce yourself and then introduce uh, your amazing friend and our guest today, Peter Merrick. Thanks, Tom, for having me on the show and for allowing uh, TechBlocks to sponsor the interview. I really appreciate that. Yes, my name is uh, Peter Goral. I'm Vice President of Business Development and Client Relations here at TechBlocks. And here at TechBlocks, it's our mission through a convergence of consulting, creativity, and technology to serve small, medium, and enterprise businesses, helping them optimize their business in the digital world. Our guest today, a long-term friend of mine, Peter J. Merrick. Peter is a trust and estate practitioner and president of MerrickWealth.com. He's a business exit planning firm in Toronto specializing in income and capital enhancement solutions for business owners. That sounds absolutely fantastic. He's also the author of over 800 published articles and three industry textbooks, Ask, Advisor Seeking Knowledge, The Task, The Trusted Advisor Survival Kit, and the Essential Individual Pension Plan Handbook. He's currently completing his fourth book, his attempt at an easy read, which is my specialty, for the successful entrepreneurs titled The King of Main Street, Dealing with Life, Succession, and Legacy. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, Peter and Tom, for having me this hour. That's great. Uh, Based on the fact that I handled the introduction, Tom, perhaps I'll uh, allow you the first question. Hey, Peter. Uh, we got two Peters on here. So, Peter America, Peter Goral and I had, do a fair bit of mentoring. We get asked to do mentoring a lot. Peter did a session today. He did one on Friday, and I do it on a regular basis. And we've discussed this. Uh, what is the difference between a mentor and a patron? Well, most people think they're the same, but they're different. What a mentor is, it's usually like a male mother or it's like a person who's older who's had experiences that a young person can go to, get advice, career advice, life advice, and the person will listen to them and give them guidance. A a, a patron is is much different because that's per, that's a person who takes someone under their wing. They'll open doors for that person. Uh, they're the uh, protege's success is their success. They're an extension of that individual, and it's a much different dynamics. A mentor relationship is a one-way relationship where the mentor gives and listens to the mentoree, while a protege dealing in a relationship with a patron, it's two-way. They, they have responsibilities to the patron as well as the patron looks out for them. Uh, sorry, I put, had myself on mute, but Peter, that's uh, very interesting. And I, and I think 
I have probably just merged the two together and, not, you know, not really understanding because I actually mentor a, a uh, um, couple of guys who run a small um, high-tech business, and I've also uh, moved business uh, toward them too. So I've, I guess I've kind of crossed the line, haven't I? Yes, and, you know, it's it's very interesting when we look at these types of relationships because it's almost contextual as well. Many There's some people who are just givers, such as yourself, Peter, because know, we've known each other for, for 17 years where you just help people. Yeah. You give words of wisdom that actually could change people's minds because you've walked the path. But there's other people that you've spent time with that you've had business relationships with where you've opened up your network to them, and in return mm -hmm. they've opened up their network to you, and you've created something together, and there's this this relationship which is semiotic where you guys both help each other reach goals together. And and you usually find that many people who are very successful, they have many people they've mentored. They've, I've been a university prof where like I've helped people and I've given information to these people. I've uh, given them insight. But there's other people I've sat down where I have an invested interest that they're successful because their mm -hmm. success is my success. You know, so because right. there's only so many people we can have really quality relationships with in our lifetime, and it's important to be very selective of who we really invest most of that time with. And yeah. we're all looking for something, whether we're looking for someone uh, to be successful, or we're looking for our next business deal, or you know, we're all like we're all we need to survive, but the meaning we derive from our life, that's something that we have to determine. And this is, you know, this, there's some people who just go and, you know, they're, they're very you know, helpful when, just in the yeah, way that yeah. they are. Right. When you talk about discriminating between who you might mentor, you know, or become a patron to, I mean, when I look at some of the younger people that I've, you know, that I've been a, uh, talking to in that space, there's an anxiety on their part, you know, oh, I want to be famous like you. Oh, I want to be a network like you. I mean, and, and one of the first pieces of advice I give them is to actually slow down, take a breather, you know, and make, take a practical approach to this. Uh, what would you have to add to that? Well, years ago, I, you know, when I was young and so much energy like you're talking about it because now I, I don't have that energy. <laughs> uh, I, I stumbled on a book and the book was called uh, Common Stock Uncommon Returns. It was by Phil Fisher. And here was an individual that Buffett said he you know, was one of his great influences on the way he invested. And what Phil Fisher said is he would never invest in anybody who hadn't, you know, broken a few teeth and broken bones and, you know, been counted out, but they didn't allow themselves to be counted out. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they stood up. And he said those are the people he would invest in. He would never invest in someone who was really young and hit it out of the park. And, he, and that was the worst thing that could ever happen to, to anyone. So what I wish upon these people is uh, I wish them much success, but not early. And I hope they have plenty of failures and the difference between someone who's really successful and has uh, sustainability is someone, it's easy to be successful, it's easy to win the lottery, it's easy to, you know, hit it out of the park. But the question is when things don't work out, 
is this individual the type of person who's going to get up? And where a mm-hmm. real mentor can come in is this is the person who tells them that this is part of life. Yeah. And it's the tenacity to get up and to move forward and to move to something that's important to you. That's what's going to show your character. And that's what a mentor does. As I mentioned before, I said it's like a male mother. Here, here we are, Peter, and, you know, and you've done this a lot longer than I have, where you know, young, this younger person, you're able to be a male mother to the person, where you're able to, you know, to say, you know, I've been there before. I know what you're going through. You have to go through it. It's painful. You know when they say when one door shuts and another one opens? A mentor is there to say, well, you know, in between those two doors, is a bloody hallway. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Absolutely. And, that, Peter, and, and that's really... <laughs> yes. How, how did you even get interested in this subject matter? I mean, was it... Was it a, you know, did it come out of your, out of your financial practice? Or how did you even get there? It was a combination. I think it was a combination. Years ago, I... I uh, I learned something, and it, it made perfect sense to me on an intellectual level, but it, it was very age-centric as well. And I remember being told that to really understand what I'm about to share with you, you have to be a certain age. So uh, what it was is life questions. What are the questions that people ask at different stages in their lives? And and I, I said, well, I get this. I fully get like what these questions are, and I can relate to them and you know, I was young and cocky, because <laughs> I didn't. And those, but I want to share what those questions are, and, and I hope your listeners, at whatever stages they're at, they'll understand them and, you know, might relate to them personally, you know, whatever age they are. The first question that we ask when we're first, we're really young, is who are we? It's an identity question. It's like, am I Trontonian? Am I from San Francisco? Am I American? Am I Canadian? Am I Christian? Am I Muslim? Am, like, am I male? Am I female? Am I, am I a son? Am I a brother? We look for our identity. And around when we become teenagers, the next question, the second question is, how do I fit in? You know that uncomfortable, how we all feel uncomfortable in high school when we went through high school? Like, are we cool? Are we popular? What do people think of us? It's like we're trying to figure out how we fit in amongst our peers and amongst society. In our early 20s, the third question that people ask is, what will I do? It's not an identity question, but it's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to make myself productive in life? And around middle age, people start asking, like, who have I become? Because we're no longer Mm. planning. We're no longer planning who we're going to become. We're that person. And in our, like, mid-50s, the question that people start asking uh, is, what have I accomplished? Because they realize that there's more working days behind them than forward. And then around 65 or a little older, you know, healthy people trans, uh, transition into the last question. And it's what my legacy will be. What will I be remembered for? What will I have given back to the world? Because I know that I'm not going to be here. How am I going to make the world better? How am I going to heal the world or, you know, leave my mark because I know that I'm not going to be there much later. And I, you know, yeah. start transitioning. 
I, mm-hmm. I, I, one of the things I want to share with, uh, with you what I've learned, and again, it's had greater meaning for me, is I, I've learned that life is like a biathlon. The first half of life is building the ego, trying to acquire, becoming great, earning lots of money. The second half of life is deconstructing what we've, what we've accumulated and build up of who we think we are and to give it back. And mm-hmm. unhealthy people bring the rules of the first half into the second half. That doesn't mean that people, if they bring the rules of the first half into the second half, they're not extremely wealthy and successful and have great jobs and great titles. But many of those people find that they're very unhappy. And that's when mentorship, that's when the need to the mentor of a healthy individual and they're deconstructing themselves, they they become elders where they have the, around 55, they have a dying desire to give back to younger people and that fits hand in hand for younger people who are in their 20s who are dying to be mentored but unfortunately they can't find the right people and they don't know because they don't have guidance mm-hmm. and our society unfortunately does it, we've lost initiations in our society we've lost elders in our society instead of like people being around who have walked the path they go off to Florida they go to an old folks home they <laughs> are completely disconnected from you know being able to to help right like in right. tribal now, in tribal society I just want to address this yeah. in tribal yeah. society because a, a, a mentor can't be a parent because a parent has a certain role with a child in tribal right. society the father would bring the son to a village elder, and the village elder would initiate the son. The Mm -hmm. the emphasis is the father would bring and present the son, but they would not be the one to initiate the son. That is the key. The key... Interesting. and And that was... And society spent so much energy. These tribal societies spent so much energy. And I know people say that, you know, well, they were backward, they didn't know any different, they, they, they're, they're not as technologically advanced as we are today. Well, we have to also ask if they, it's true, they didn't have iPhones and access to food and all that stuff. So right. they spent so much time and resources on their youth to initiate them to become responsible members of society. It must have had some economic value. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you should, yeah, yeah, it's funny you should bring that up, but I think, yeah, I think you see it when you say tribal, you see it in the, the Indians, and also you see it a little bit more in the European families, where the grandparents actually become the drivers of the realities for the younger people because the parents are busy forging ahead and building the building the lifestyle for the family but it's the elders the guys with the wisdom they want to plant the young person on that elder's lap and say give it to them give them everything you give them everything you know uh, because they're going to need this right and that's a special relationship we're the we're yeah. the only apes that like after you know our, our children have got into a certain age that we still live on. There must be a biological reason for it. However, yeah. we've forgotten. We we become so detached where everything's been outsourced. But like 
grandparents like live separately or completely disconnected from their grandchildren. The elders go off to, uh, or seniors go off to Florida. And I, I, I want to also give two different definitions. There's a difference between a senior and an elder. A senior is just someone who's lived long. An elder is someone who's acquired wisdom, has actually dealt with their stuff, and is now able to go and give wisdom. I, I found something very interesting in, in, in my search to understand this. I, everyone knows the story of Merlin and Arthur and Camelot, mm-hmm. but do they really know the story? And the story is Merlin was a warrior king. He was a warrior king who was a successful warrior king. And at one stage he said, this is enough, I don't like this life, and he goes off into the woods. And he decides that he's going to control, learn to control weather. Weather is a metaphor, a metaphor for emotions. And he wasn't able to do it. But he was able to take control of weather when he had a vision of Camelot and he found Arthur, who is going to bring it about. He found a student, a mentor, a protege, uh, that he was going to to work with to bring his vision because he knew he was not able to do it himself. And that's something that's missed in that story, but it's a story for today. Mm-hmm. It's, people, it's people who've actually walked the path who can actually say, you know, I spent 20 years doing it and I can show you how to do it in five minutes so you don't have to spend the 20 years. But I hope that right. you still gain the wisdom. Because the, yes. the wisdom doesn't matter whether you do it faster. You, the, it, it still takes as long to, you know, to to gather that wisdom. But I can direct you so you don't have to spend as much time as I did, and hopefully you'll learn from my mistakes. Are you fold, are you folding these types of conversations into your day to day business as an estate practitioner? Because I got the feeling that. You know, there's an interesting segue between between the life succession and legacy story that you obviously uh, and I obviously want to learn more about the King of Main Street a, a, a little later on in this conversation. But how, how do you bring it? Do you, do you bring it to light in the conversations that you're having with with people that you're helping plan their lives out? Well, it it helps me identify because again, most of my background is in finance and tax and estate planning, and that's what my writing, the majority of my writing has been on. But I'll tell you what I've I've learned, and again, it, I wasn't listening until until several years ago uh, what people were saying to me. You know, I was my first book was on, and I'll I'll share with you my story and how the how this interest has come about. I wrote a, my first book on pension plans, something that was very hot. Everybody wanted it. It was great for business owners. It was better than IRAs. It was better than 401ks, and it was better than RSPs. It was just phenomenal. And it, was, it allowed a business owner to pull out hundreds of thousands and possibly like maybe several million out of the business tax rate to use it for their retirement. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited, and I wrote that book, and when I finished it, I something dawned on me, and I had pressure from my uh, from my publisher to get them the manuscript, so I gave it to them. But I forgot to ask the most important question: Why would someone want to do this? 
Because <laughs> I was looking at it from a financial point of view. Hey, you get to save all this money. Right. I forgot to ask the most important question. Why would someone want to do this? And the answer was so simple. They wanted out. They wanted out yeah. of their business. They were getting ready to, to get to the next stage. And what I realized, you know, and, and the journey of all my books I've written since is like, okay, when someone wants out as an advisor, I have to know how to help them get out because many people when they start successful businesses and when they're young, they, they want to do it because they want to have a family, they want to go and have shelter, they want to be able to travel, they want all this stuff. So their business is a means to get happiness. And then what happens is it becomes the end for them or it becomes a shackle for them. They want out. They want to enjoy their lives, and they don't know how to do it. And one of the problems is they don't know what's beyond that. And this is where uh, my education came in because when I was talking just finance, you know, like a balance sheet and like how to save money and whatever, I wasn't helping people figure out what they wanted to do next what the next stage yeah. of life is. Yeah. And it yeah. became, well, I have, and there was no, and, I, and it also was bad for business too because if I'm involved in helping someone sell their business, pull money out of their company and all that stuff, well, if they're never planning to get out, there's no need for me. <laughs> so having to sit down with them and having to sit down with them and figure out like what they wanted, what they really want to do what they value beyond the financials and the transition. And I found out many, one of the things I found very interesting is when I would sit down with really, really successful business owners, I'm talking people who, you know, had made it, you know, they're worth several hundred million dollars, you know, they were really successful. They would sit and give me unsolicited advice, and this advice is worth a fortune. I can't put a price on it. But they wanted to share this. And I'm a writer, and in essence, they wanted to share, They wanted me to tell their stories, and I started writing articles and talking about situations, you know. And I became almost like a scribe because they 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 had this dying, this dying, dying need to share their story. I'll, I'll share with you a recent story that happened to me several months ago. I was right. sitting with one of the richest men in Canada. This individual came to this country as a, as a poor immigrant and. His family moved into Christie Pitts, and if, if people don't know Christie Pitts, it's a really it's a really rough area in Toronto, and it's still rough yeah. today. <laughs> right. This 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 twelve year old kid had to fight for everything that they had, you know, and he wanted he wanted to prove himself. He wanted to to do something with them. Himself. Well, they, at the when I sat down with him and I started writing this uh, this story, he was worth several billion dollars. And the way the story, the way my article came about, is he turned to me one he turned to me one day and he started telling me what it took for him to be successful. He he was someone you would say he was so successful. Everything he wanted so desperately for someone to tell his story, not because because he he wanted to share the wisdom that he had actually gathered in his life. And that was such a that, that you know, and I seized that moment, and that's happened to me several times. And you're sharing with me, with 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 all of us, Peter, that you know you've got a lot of young people who come to you saying, "Help me," or "Can you guide me?" Right. I find myself right. in the reverse. I because I'm a writer, uh, and I deal with succession planning, and I, I have a skill set in tax and business succession. 
I have these successful business owners saying to me, I want to tell my story. I need someone yes. to help yeah. me write my narrative of my story and actually help me find meaning for it. And I've been very fortunate where I've had people turn to me and they, they tell me that. They, 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 they don't give, they, they, they want to like give to a charity. They want to go make sure yeah. their kids are happy and healthy. But at the same time, they want, to, they want to know that their lives meant something. What good is building towers throughout Toronto that no one knows that the person exists? When I go through you know, buildings or you know, streets or in Toronto, I don't really think about who built them or who. Very few, like very few people have that. However, to have a huge impact on people, one of my one one of the most interesting people I think in uh, Western history is Andrew Carnegie, because he he understood that he understood understood the value of, of leaving a legacy, and he did it both with people. He built people. He wrote mm-hmm. an essay three years before he became the richest man in the world because he hadn't. We didn't know how much his business was worth before he sold it to Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote an essay called "The Gospel of Wealth." He, it was published in nineteen, sorry, eighteen ninety-eight. He had only given ten million dollars of his fortune away at that point, which was a fraction, probably one percent of what his wealth was. And in 1901, he sold his business. He spent the next 18 years of his life giving away 95% of his net worth, but he was consciously wow. giving it away. He consciously, wow. There's over 200 libraries he uh, created. He created teachers' pension funds. He even created the Palace of Peace, which is now the criminal court in The Hague. He basically knew, he said, if someone dies with a lot of money, They've been a failure. If they haven't given uh, of themselves before they leave this earth, they're a failure. And many people who really give value, and it doesn't have to be money, it's time. And money is really what we trade our life energy for, and uh, and in essence, that's time. Wow. Peter, you are speaking to the choir. Uh, Napoleon Hill wrote the book Think and Grow Rich, one of the top ten best-selling books of all time. And he was asked to do it by Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie asked him to work for 20 years for free, interviewing hundreds, over 500 of the wealthiest people at that time. And he gave him personal letters of introduction to them all. And uh, so that man was all about giving, giving his wisdom. He knew there was formulas. He knew that there was success principles. And he wanted to assimilate all of them from the most successful people, the Thomas Edison's, the Henry Ford's, the uh, presidents at the time, uh, the Woolworths, uh, the big uh, uh, merchants of uh, business at the time. And so I am a ginormous fan of uh, of Andrew Carnegie, and not only for the money he left. I was, for instance, speaking at an event in Hamilton a few weeks ago. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, and it was at a Rotary event, and there was a director of libraries there. And he said, oh, yeah, there's one right here in Hamilton that Andrew Carnegie gave money for to start the original Hamilton Library. 
And so he didn't even just keep it into the U.S. He donated up in Canada here as well. And uh, amazing men, amazing men. And I think I recently or saw something in the last year or two that Bill Gates, uh, I know Bill Gates is following that same philosophy of giving it all away, and he's encouraging a lot of billionaires to uh, do the same thing. Like uh, their kids don't need all that money. Well, Carnegie believed that it was damaging, and there's a there's a saying that I learned years ago when I when I dealt more in money management. I had a client call me up, and I was like, I was really fearful because this was like after the great tech crash. Remember that, Peter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, did you the, have to remind me? <laughs> well, it was a great lesson, right? It was like it, yeah. was, a, it was a great it was a great high. Like all of us were drunk with uh, you know they'd like. Business had changed, and it was the the stock market went up twenty, thirty percent a year. You know, it was it was a great time during the Clinton era. And I a, but I, I I have a client who calls me up, and uh, I I'm worried to talk to him because you know the everybody's portfolio went down like forty percent. So I'm like really worried to sit down with him, and he gives a phrase to me that I've never heard before and it goes right into what uh, what we're talking about today. He said, the bread of shame. I said, what's... I, I asked him what the bread of shame was. He says, you can't keep what you have not rightfully earned. And this is what Carnegie talks about. This is what uh, uh, Emerson talks about in his essay, Compensation. You know, you have to earn what you get. Like, if you... If, it, if it's, it's the worst curse to a young person is they hit it out of the park when they start out. The worst thing that could ever happen to them because they have nothing to compare it to. They have no understanding what uh, what this means and what life's about. I had something very interesting happen to me several years ago. Uh, I do a lot of uh, television interviews when uh, the lottery becomes like crazy, like when it goes to over 50 million. And because years ago I wrote a I, I, I wrote an article uh, in McLean's and, and several others on like what happens to lottery winners and how to handle wealth. And I uh, I uh, went to the Ontario Lottery Corporation and I asked them about their research and they told me they stopped following their research after. Uh, after three weeks, after the person wins, they stop following what happens to them, and they have a little booklet that doesn't really say anything about what to do with you know like your lottery winners. But there's a number of studies that have come out that show shows that usually three years out, a lottery winner has lost all their money. But worse, all their relationships have been damaged as well. They don't have them anymore <laughs> because they're not. It's a bread of shame. They 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 did not come to it through you know a progression. When right. I meet someone who's really successful, who started from nothing and has something successful, really what that means to me is this person. It's not about what they've acquired. That's that's sort of like you know when they talk about in physics that you know matter is three percent, but dark matter and dark energy are is ninety. Is ninety is ninety seven percent of reality of like what's out there in the universe. When you see someone mm-hmm. who's really successful, has a big business, everything that's the three percent. When you're someone who's really successful who did it themselves, it's their ability to deal with complexity, to deal with uh, you know, and to move forward. 
And it's sort of like the Peter principle. Dr. Peter Lawrence wrote a book back mm-hmm. in the 60s saying people rise to the highest level of incompetence. However, that being said, getting back to our, our, our conversation, is it, years ago there was a, a physicist who was trying to explain you know, what the value of mentorship was. And he, he said, if you took a blind man and you gave him a Rubik's Cube, it would take them about 26 billion years to be able to get it perfect. That's twice as long as what they say the known universe, the age of the known universe. However, if you took that blind man and you had someone who was an expert in the Rubik's Cube and said yes and no to every move they made, uh, they would be able to do it within 120 moves within three minutes. That's the value of having the right mentor. Wow, that's impressive. I was because I, I was actually building to a. I was trying to get you back to the uh, talking about mentorship, even though you kind of moved off it a little bit. But really, you know, I keep thinking like, what am I responsible for? Like it's a it's a burning question with me every time. Every time I I find myself in this situation, like it seems like a really responsible task to take on. And I'm not that I don't know, you know, my own threshold, but what do you believe are the responsibilities of, uh, of you know, the mentoree, for instance? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that I'm responsible to give them the best advice I can possibly get, but what about the other side of the coin? What's, what, what, what should they actually be looking to put on, you know, put on the table? Well, number one, they should choose you. You shouldn't choose them. Because I can go and tell someone again and again. I remember being, uh, I went to someone, I gave them advice, and they they gave me a really good piece of advice. And the advice was, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what to do, because you're not going to listen to me. Right. You're not going to listen to me. And he said, you're going to go out there and do whatever you're going to do. You're going to fall on your face, whatever. And maybe yeah. you'll get up, and then you'll come back, and then you'll want to listen to me. Yeah. So uh, you can't tell someone something if they're not ready for it. It's like right. there, there's that old uh, you know, saying that uh, the Lassus said, that Lassus, sorry, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. It's yeah. also inverse. It's when, the, it's when the teacher is ready, the student will appear. Yeah. And, and yeah. the most important thing and why, why it's healthy for someone to find someone because it comes down to the Rubik's Cube. It's like they can guide you. But at the same time, if someone wants to be a healthy individual at the end of their life, they have to actually come to terms with, you know, whatever happened, my successes, my failures, or whatever, that part of my life's over. I'm going to share the wisdom I have, and that's where I'm going to have the greatest yeah. wealth. And wealth yeah. happens to be relationships with people. Peter, we're in the business of relationships. I deal in like mental constructs all day, where like I draw circles and squares, and you know reorganize companies, and you know mm-hmm. this. If I do it this way, the person ends up saving this amount. If the person does that, they lose this amount, which goes to taxes. Like I don't work in the real world. The only thing I do work in is relationships, the quality of my relationships. And I don't know if you guys have ever talked about Dunbar's number. No, I can't say. 
Dunbar was a zoologist, and I guess one of his greatest students was Marty, uh, was Gladwell when he wrote The Tipping Point. And what he oh, did, yes. he, studied, he studied groups. He, go, he, he, studied, uh, he studied monkeys, and he looked at uh, what size their groups were, and he found out the... Uh, in these small monkey communities, the ones that would like you know groom the other monkeys, they would stand up for the ones they spend the most time with. Right. And he looked at their neurocortexes, and he found he looked and he said you know cohesive group was about thirty to forty. And he looked at human neurocortexes, and he found that you know they were three times larger. And he said you know the average human group which could be cohesive would be 120 to 150 and they found this through you know looking at army like traditional army battalions and they would look at Mennonite groups and right. there would be a breakdown and you know people any you know discovered that people couldn't have meaningful relationships when it went above 150 so they become conscious that's the question uh, yes. who's in your group who yes. and what questions yes. should I be asking yeah. and I spent a lot of time, and and Peter, you saw me struggle through this, like uh, like 17 years ago. I was trying to figure yeah. out, like, what are the questions to figure out to have a meaningful relationship? And I, you know, I was I was lucky. I I uh, met someone who who had spent time articulating that. Mm-hmm. You know, the greatest mm-hmm. thing about a human being is that we have the ability to bind time. That I can learn from your experiences. Yeah. And the three questions yeah. that allow me to identify people that I want in my core group, maybe the ten people or mm-hmm. five people or whatever, because I might have uh, uh, 150. These are people that if I bumped into, I would have a coffee with. Yeah. Um, but yeah. what are the questions in my core group that I should be asking? And the questions that, that I find helpful, maybe it would be helpful for your audience, or the first one is, do we share the same values? Number one, if you're if we don't share the same values, there's really no reason for us to try to work together. Number Very two, good. number two, the question should be, can we work together? We might share the same values, but you know, I, you know, I I work in the morning, you work at night. Like you know, you can't wake up by the time I'm going to bed. Like there, it might not yep. be, it might not like we might share the same values, and we might you know we'll be sick of each other. And I say they're the greatest guy mm-hmm. in the world, but we can't work together. Yeah. And the third is their opportunity. Now, if the person doesn't share the same values, get them out. Yeah. Get them like let them like wish them well on their way. Yeah. But if they share the yeah. same values and we can work together. Yeah. We It's interesting, you know, you're talking about you're talking about being able to manage relationships and and ways that you can manage those relationships, but just take a look at the world we live in today. We're on Twitter. I've got friends in Australia, in the UK. I've got connections. Like, I know they're not real friends, but they're people that I engage with, and some of them I have actually bubbled up to become friends, and I've actually met them. We've had conversations over the phone and taken it beyond Twitter, and the same could be said of LinkedIn. And, you know, I, I am a firm believer that, you know, to do a really good job of a relationship, you know, you've, there's got to be something in it, and there's absolutely no, there's not a person in the world that I believe that can handle 5,000 connections, right? I mean, somebody's going to suffer, even if it's you as the individual, right? I mean, it's 
talk to me on your thoughts about that. Well, Margaret Mead had a had a, a great saying, and it went something like this: "It says, a few people can change the world. That's the way it's always been. So if you have the right people in your core group, you can change the world." Have you ever realized, like I looked, like you see Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren, they lived on the same street as kids, and you say, hey, that must have been a magical street, because look at those magic, those incredible, successful billionaire designers. No, they helped each other. They shared the same yeah. interests. They had the same passions. They had the same background. And they helped each other. When they got jobs and that, they, they helped each other be successful. Right. And that's really, this is really what you want. You want to have a synergy group, too. You want to have yes. a synergy group where people, you know, where your success is their success, where you're invested in their success. And this is the one thing mm -hmm. where, like, people who are parents can relate to this. My, even if my kids don't want to eat, I'm going to make sure they eat because it's important to me. If someone helps right. me out and they say, no, no, I'm doing this because I'm a great person, like they want to feel <laughs> that they're a great person, right, they're a saint, and they're starving, I'm not. I'm not. I'm giving to them because it's it, it's helping me. I'm making sure right. that they're eating, that they're not doing without, because they can't help me be successful. Right. And this is where, which is, which is, you know, immaturity comes in, where people start looking at like I'm great, I'm wonderful, and whatever. No one's great and wonderful by themselves. Everybody mm -hmm. has to be successful. You need a strong network. You've yeah, got to be sure. a giver. You've got to be a giver. You've got to be someone, you know, but not stupid, strategic. Like there's uh, what, I, what I've learned is I test people if they're right to work with. And mm. I trade items of unequal value. It's a test. I write. Lots of people want to have access to, to my audience because I write for accountants and lawyers in Canada. Right. And I have... I've got access, and there's tons of people. That, to me, I have to write, I have to produce something regardless. Every week, I need something. So I can write about you, Peter. I can go and make you, know, make you look like you're Jesus and you walk on water. <laughs> and that's my Well, that would be nice. And I even know how much my column is actually worth. I, I quantified who the readership is, like the hard cost and also the soft cost, what the value is, and I'm writing a brochure for you. I know exactly what it is. That's my offering. It doesn't cost me anything. I'm going to do it anyway. But for you, it, gives, it might, you might place value on that. Yeah. And... You know, then the question is, are you a person who goes and says, you know, I want to be in an infinite game? And there's, I, I want to share with you something else I, I discovered. You know, there's two ways of looking at the world. There's two games that we can play. We can be, we can play finite games and we can play infinite games. And I'll use the, and I'll, and I'll describe what that is or what I've learned mm. that is. Uh, a somebody who's playing a finite game is like we're playing volleyball and you're, entire, or, or the person I'm playing against, their entire goal is to win. Where they're going to spike it and try and score points. That's a finite person. That's a person who's mm. playing a finite game. And an, infinite, an infinite game player is someone, I, we volley. And we want to volley. Maybe we want, and we want to bring back in Tom, right? Tom, get back here. <laughs> we want to go and have this game. We want as many people in the game as possible. We want to volley as much as possible and as many people to play as possible. And that's an infinite game player. 
And those are the people we want to find. And getting back to mentors and, and, uh, and people who are going to assist us, those are the people. That the, the, the wise people are also understand that as well, that they don't want to be worthless. They don't want to just take from society or take directly from you. They also want to give. And you want to give back to them. I do something nice for you. You want to do something nice for me. But we want to test each other because, you know, there's, there's spiritual angels out there, but there's also spiritual vampires. <laughs> Peter, 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 wow. Before I ask this next question, yeah, talk about Andrew Carnegie who initiated Thinking Grow Rich with Napoleon Hill, and you talked about Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's one of the people Napoleon Hill wrote the most about, and I read that book, The Law of Compensation. Now, it's like reading the King James Bible. It's like really old English. My, I had to reread paragraphs and sentences. What the heck is he saying? But there is some incredible wisdom in that book, The Law of Compensation. It's an old one. It's hard to read, but the wisdom is timeless, timeless. Now, I'm thinking about aging demographics, and uh, uh, I've often thought of this as well. So, first of all, we'll ask, does it, how do the aging demographics play into the topic? But also, what if someone's like 35, really successful, done really well? They're sharp. They're good. Can they mentor someone who's like 55, or does it always have to be the older person mentoring the younger person? And and how does aging demographics fit into this mentor mentoree uh, uh, thing that's going on and that's uh, so prevalent these days? Well, we we always it's it's always two way street. We all like we learn from other human beings. That's the greatest thing about human communication and human relationships is I can learn from I can see things differently through my children that I might that I didn't see when I was that age and I can get joy from that like how often do we get joy that you know some we're really successful when we do but someone we've helped or we know is successful and we get that excitement as if it's our first time you know, we you can always get like there's always a relationship. There's always learning going back and forth. Like I, you know, one of the closest people I work with is is 24 years older than me, and the wisdom I gain from his experiences are are really mm-hmm. helpful. Basically, the biggest thing I've learned is it's not a big deal because if you get up every morning <laughs> and you're breathing, you're in the game. That means the game's going on. <laughs> It, it's not over. It's only over when they put you in a box, <laughs> and people fail to see that. And that, and about the the demographic out there, it's incredible. I did a a radio program for about two years on demographics, and I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to, and you're going to be the the surrogate for the audience. How many people have they calculated have ever walked on this planet, both alive? And dead. Oh my God, I, I I wouldn't even know I wouldn't even know where how how to how to how to answer that. <laughs> Ten or twelve billion. Is that both of you? Both of you think? Hey, uh, Peter billion? doesn't know, I, I, and I'm estimating. No, I'm, we got I'm, six I'm, billion I'm, now. I'm I'm pleading I'm pleading the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just guessing. This number is this number is huge, but the but there's a point to it. 
they're figuring about one point, sorry, 107 billion people. Ooh. And that's about 60,000 generations have lived. Wow. Now, most of the time, the population was flat because, you know, people would have six kids and you would, the life expectancy for women was probably about like 23, 24, and for men it was about mm -hmm. 33. You know, and that was for the longest time, and then we had this explosion. Now, 107 billion people have lived. Now, out of that, they're figuring that only a half a billion, <laughs> a half a billion people have ever lived to the age 65 and beyond. Wow. And most of the people who've ever lived that, to that age are alive. <laughs> so we've never had this much wisdom Interesting. And it, there's an old saying that says when an old person dies, a library is burnt down. We have such wisdom out there, and we have so many people because of our changing society who are dying to have that wisdom shared with them, but there's a disconnect. So there's mm -hmm. so much opportunity. As I mentioned before, uh, a senior to someone who's just made it to an age. It's a chronological age. Right. An elder is someone who's actually dealt with their issues, accepted their life, and is able to share. And there's so much wisdom. Just because they don't know how to use a smartphone, there's the wisdom they have. Human beings, the, the one thing about human beings, it doesn't matter about technology, we, we still like, are born, age, and die, and we go through different, age, with different, different stages in our lives. And as we started at the beginning of our talk, is about those six questions. Wow. We start asking different questions, and we can share. And the greatest thing that human beings are able to do the, is communicate and bind time. Both you, Tom, and Peter, you can share your wisdom with me and also your audience and individuals who you touched in your lives and they've touched in your lives. And they, mm -hmm. you know, they don't directly have to have those experiences, but they can learn from them. And you can guide them. Yeah. And there's going to be such a resource. They're figuring that the uh, population of the world is going to top out about 9 billion, 9.5 billion people before it starts declining uh, mid-century to the end of the century. However, they're expecting 1.6 billion people over the age of 65 around two, uh, 2050. That's a huge amount of knowledge and wisdom. Wow. And that can be tapped in. And there's going to be such resources as well. People, like we, we have the most, in North America, we have the most successful generation that are becoming seniors who can become elders and give back. The question is, are we going to have a system, have a culture that allows young people to tap into it? Because at the same time, as we were talking earlier about initiation and becoming, let's say, an adult, mm -hmm. there's no initiations to become an elder. And we need to help people who are really successful in business or in life or who've lived life to be able to help younger people and not just say, go out there and share your wisdom. There's got to be a way. There's got to be support networks to enable and empower these people to help the younger generation. And that is going to help us deal with so many of the issues that we face in society, both business, environmental, societal, 
by being able to tap into that wisdom because these people are not going to be competing with younger people. There's no there's no reason for like I'm like if I'm 76 years old, there's no reason for me to be competing with a 25 year old. He's stronger than me. He can run faster than me. Right. He probably works longer hours than me. However, I can I you know I can go and you know share my wisdom and help that person uh, do the best they can on the premise that they will also, when it's their time, when the circle comes around for them, when they're in the fall and winter of their lives, they will continue that circle. Yeah. And that's... It's fun. Yeah, you I know, I'm listening to you speak, and I keep envisioning what you do for a living, the kinds of things that you do for a living, and I can ju- I can almost see this segue between you know, this conversation and you sitting down with a business owner and having having that business owner totally understand the the kind of emotional posturing that you're you know, you're you're asking for him to to take on as he starts to look at his succession planning of his company. I I I, I feel this all coming together. I I, I really do. Well, I can I just I just sense you. it. Well, I'll share with you what sticks in my mind. Like, and now, uh, uh, um, about 16 years ago, my father passed away, and there's one thing that sticks in my mind is when he was really sick, I, you know, asked him what he wanted to do, and he said, he said he never felt success. He was always working, working, working. He said, you know, he always wanted to, you know, donate his time to uh, these certain charities he had always given to, but he never felt he had the time to do it. And that's what he wanted to do, but it was too late. So that sticks in my mind because when I sit down and I meet somebody who's really successful in business and they start telling, giving me unsolicited advice, mentoring advice, and you know they want to be released, they've built a gilded cage, they might have a really successful business that they've got you know, 20, 30, even 500 people working for them, but in essence that's the trap. And now and they, there's things that, they, that have more meaning for them, but they don't know how to get from here to there, from actually doing succession and passing on that to someone else who will be able to make it bigger, better, brighter, and actually get great enjoyment out of it so they can actually do the things that at that stage of life that are yeah. really meaningful and that for most healthy Human beings at the end of their lives, it's giving back to their grandchildren wisdom. It's give it's 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 being a catalyst to help other people reach their success, and that's where joy happens. And it's very similar to what I was sharing with you before. Anybody who has a child, when that child enjoys themselves and experiences something for the first time, it's like you're experiencing it, and that's the value to the mentor. Yeah. Wow, amazing. amazing, Peter. We uh, obviously we got an, an exciting conversation going here. We've gone past the time that we planned, and you just got three guys, two guys here that are just listening to your every word. Now, Peter and I are. Uh, we suck a little bit at uh, promoting because we haven't even given your website yet. People have to wait like now 56 minutes to get your website. And so i got to get better at that. <laughs> MerrickWealth.com, M-E-R-R-I-C-K, Wealth.com. Uh, and uh, you're in the Toronto area. 
So again, MerrickWealth.com. Everybody knows how to spell wealth, and if not, they shouldn't be listening. And Merrick, M-E-R-R-I-C-K, Wealth.com. Amazing. I've gone through some of this, what you do. My father had his own business, and I decided that I didn't want to work in it. So yeah, he sold the business. My stepfather is worth about $50 million. He's 83, so he's going through some of these same uh, decisions and ideas and concepts that you talk about. And so, 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 so important. And it just ties all together right into uh, the topic that we've been talking about, uh, uh, leaving your wisdom as well as your money, uh, but mostly your wisdom and your ideas and what you've learned to the younger generation, whether they're related to you or not. And so thank you so much for your time. Again, MerrickWealth.com. We'll say it like five times at the end instead of like yeah. once every five minutes. <laughs> so uh, MerrickWealth.com. Uh, Peter's in Toronto, but he works anywhere in Canada that business owners are looking to uh, uh, sell their business or protect their assets. Uh, give Peter a call. Thanks so much for your time, uh, Peter. I, we really enjoyed it. Peter and I were, we didn't even pay attention to the clock. We we're just uh, sitting on every word there. Well, thank you very much, Tom and Peter, for the opportunity to to have this hour with you. Appreciate it so much. Take care. Thanks, Peter. You too.